You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 24th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We hear a lot of stories in the general media about melting ice as a consequence of global warming. Stories about starving polar bears, ice shelves breaking off, how much sea level rise we should expect, how quickly the ice caps are melting, and so on. In fact, there were six such stories that I saw mentioned repeatedly in November and December alone. But unless you've really studied the subject, it can be hard to put it all together. So in this eighth part of our mini-series on climate science, we're going to try to do just that. What does it really mean when we say that a worst-case climate model projects 11 feet of sea level rise, or that sea ice is melting at the fastest rate in 1,500 years, or that even low levels of projected sea level rise could require heavy investments and adaptation efforts and could require residents and businesses to relocate? How will it affect you? What's the relevance of a statistic like the fastest rate in 1,500 years? And how can we relate the latest studies on melting glaciers and ice caps to degrees of global warming or meters of sea level rise? These aren't easy questions to answer, but today's guest certainly has a wealth of knowledge and experience to draw upon. Tad Pfeffer is a glaciologist, geophysicist, and photographer at the University of Colorado here in Boulder, whose research is focused on glacier mechanics and dynamics, and the behavior of ocean-ending glaciers and glacier contributions to sea level. He has done field research for more than 30 years in glacier regions from Alaska to Antarctica to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, and spent most of a decade leading a long-term study of the Columbia Glacier on Alaska's south-central coast. He has also served as an advisor to the United Nations Environmental Program, the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program, and was a lead author for Chapter 13 on sea level change in the IPCC Fifth Assessment Working Group. In addition to his scientific work, Tad has been a pioneer in time-lapse photography of glaciers, and his work has appeared in many publications in the U.S. and Europe. Among other books, he is the author of The Opening of a New Landscape, Columbia Glacier at Mid-Retreat, published in 2007. His list of accomplishments and accolades is much too long for this short intro, but suffice it to say that it's a real privilege to welcome him to the show. Rather than offering just another wild-eyed pronouncement of climate doom, his nuanced and deeply informed view of what's happening to our glaciers and ice caps is at once refreshing, thoughtful, and provocative. Then in the news segment, we'll focus on some new climate models and projections of the effects of climate change, as well as new estimates of ice melting, just to round out the picture. But first, our 90-minute conversation with Tad Pfeffer, recorded December 15th, 2017. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Tad, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. 
You're a glaciologist who has researched glaciers for more than 30 years, from Alaska to Antarctica to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. That's a lot of time to spend on ice. And among other things, your work has appeared in the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and in the documentary film about photographer James Belog's work to document the melting of the Arctic glaciers called Chasing Ice, a film that I found fascinating. So apart from the obvious fact that our glaciers and ice caps are melting, what are the main insights that you try to share with people from your many years of studying ice? I think probably the main thing that I try to communicate to people is that it's an environment that changes. And, you know, the glacier is the, the prototype of something that doesn't move or moves so slowly, you know, as slow as a glacier. And that speed is actually quite fast these days. So, you know, I get lots of questions about what do I do? When I'm working on a glacier, you know, what can you learn? The main thing that you learn is really how dramatically the landscape can change and under certain conditions, how rapidly it can change, I think is one of the main things that I can tell people that's not, you know, getting down into the weeds of the exact details mm -hmm. of what I'm doing. So when other people want to know what you can learn from studying ice, mm -hmm. like, you know, the elevator takeaway. <laughs> yeah. So I very often describe two different areas of glacier study. One of them, which many people know about, is using glaciers as a way of looking into the past. You drill a hole into the ice, you pull out the ice in the core, and you look at the composition of the little bubbles, which tell you what the past atmosphere looks like. You can look at the ice and find out by looking at the isotopes of the oxygen molecules, how cold it was in the past. And to do that, you have to know the relationship between the depth in the ice and the age. When you go down 100 meters in the ice, how far back in time are you going? And the things that I do, which is sort of the other half of that, is understanding the mechanics of how glaciers move, how they grow and shrink, how old the ice is 100 meters below the surface, that kind of thing. So it's a little bit like the ice core chemists who look at past climate through ice cores are using the glacier almost like a clock. And I'm like the clockmaker figuring out how it works. Mm, that's very cool. Essentially. Yeah. So according to the 2017 Arctic report card from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which just came out, the Arctic environmental system has reached what they call a new normal, characterized by long-term losses in the extent and the thickness of the sea ice cover, the extent and the duration of winter snow cover, and the mass of ice in the Greenland ice sheet and the Arctic glaciers, and the warming sea surface and permafrost temperatures. It also says that the water is warming and the sea ice is melting, at the fastest pace there in 1,500 years. Aside from the potential for sea level rise, which we'll discuss in a moment, what are some of the implications of these changes? Beyond the disappearance of the glaciers themselves or the shrinking of the glaciers, that water goes into the ocean, it affects sea level, it also affects water supplies, it affects the salinity of the ocean in the areas adjacent to where glaciers are discharging to the sea. For example, in coastal Alaska, what's happening to the salinity of waters in Prince William Sound in Bristol Bay on the north side of the Aleutians, the 
giant fishery, the Yukon River, comes out into Bristol Bay. That drains the north side of the Chugach Mountains and the Alaska Range. That's a lot of fresh water coming into Bristol Bay that wasn't going into the bay in past years. What's that going to do to the fisheries? Mm -hmm. The Himalayas and the Caucasus in South America, in Europe, many areas are dependent upon glacier melt for their water supplies. How's that going to change in the future? Mm. And also, as glaciers change and shrink, that tends to destabilize the landscape. And the consequence of that is landslides that block rivers that subsequently produce a flash flood when that temporary dam is broken by rising water. There's a lot of changes, which in areas of the world where people live very close to glaciers, in Nepal, for example, in the southern side of the Himalayas, those people are put at risk by really rapidly changing unstable landscapes. Mm. So that's another area that we don't really see in the United States so much or in North America. We don't have the same kinds of mountain conditions here that you see in the Himalayas, due to a certain extent in Alaska. They're very rapidly changing landscapes, and rapidly changing usually means unstable. You know, you're reminding me now of a news story I saw, oh, a couple months ago about there was a section of, I don't know if it was glacier or permafrost that suddenly kind of let loose in Canada and sent a bunch of debris downstream, which they were worried about it affecting water quality for a very long expanse. I'm not familiar with that particular incident, yeah. but that's the kind of thing yeah. that can happen. Okay. So the point about water warming and sea ice melting at the fastest pace in 1,500 years that's mentioned in this report, you know, it just made me wonder what exactly was happening 1,500 years ago, <laughs> and is there anything useful we can learn from that comparison? 1,500 years ago, they're probably referring to periods of rapid warming and cooling that we've seen coming out of the last glacial maximum. The so last time that glaciers and ice sheets in the northern hemisphere really extended a long way. So this is when there was an ice sheet, you know, over New York City, for example. Oh wow. That was about eighteen thousand years ago. That that last glacial period was at its maximum. And since that time, that ice sheet obviously has retreated and it was almost completely retreated by about 8,000 years ago. But then after that, there are these periods of fairly steady climate, but punctuated by short periods of very rapid change. They're called Danskart-Urschger cycles in the ice core climate parlance. And they're the product of interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere that allows things to change very rapidly, that's the atmosphere's job, and to stay in a certain state for a very long period of time, like a thousand years, and that's the oceans. So hmm. the atmosphere's got this capacity to respond very quickly to change. The ocean is very intimately connected to the atmosphere, but the ocean, because of its mass, is much slower to respond. And so when the atmosphere triggers something, the ocean follows, but then it lasts for a long time. Interesting. 
So what's it like to spend so much time living in the cold? I mean, I'd imagine that you've actually put up with a fair amount of physical discomfort over this long career. Everything from just being cold to chapped lips and hands and all sorts of aches and pains. And I'd imagine you even start dreaming about hot shots after a while. So <laughs> uh, how do you acclimate to that? Or do you play mind games with yourself to stay focused on your work or what? Well, it is, you know, it's the kind of work that you have to enjoy that sort of environment. Certainly, if you really hate cold weather, it's not the job for you. <laughs> I've always enjoyed snow, cold weather. I got into glaciology because I was fascinated from a very early age by snow, just on an aesthetic basis. Really? And then as I you know, got older and got into school and understood that people can study things like that, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could study ice, still not knowing that that was in fact something that many people do. And it wasn't until really I was in college that I found the literature on glaciology, the physical study of glaciers, hmm. and found out that I wasn't the only one with this idea and that there was this long history of this study. So generally, I, I like cold. I do better in cold than in heat. Actually, most of my career, I've spent working in Alaska more than anywhere else where the challenge is to stay dry hmm. more than staying warm. Hmm. But I have worked in the Canadian high Arctic and Antarctica, and it does get very cold there. I'm not as resistant to it as I used to be, mm. I should say, but it was never too much of a problem for me. And certainly, you know, you learn a lot of tricks to keep your hands warm and so forth. And yeah, after a while, you, you're ready to go somewhere else and warm up for a bit. I haven't spent the kind of really long periods of time that was characteristic, particularly people working in Antarctica up to the late 80s, early 90s. These days, it seems like there are a lot of people going in and out from Antarctica for just a few weeks at a time. But when I worked in Antarctica in the 1970s, that was actually my first experience of field work in glaciology. The routine was everybody went down for three months. Yeah, You went down and usually sometime in October, and you came back sometime in January, hmm. something like that. And so, you know, that's what I did. And I knew people that had done that, you know, year after year after year for decades. Wow. And that takes a real dedication, but it's a kind of dedication that I think is easy to maintain if you have that aesthetic attraction hmm. to the landscape. You know, these are extraordinarily beautiful places. So yeah. There's a lot of benefits to you know, putting up with the colds to be there. And it all started with an aesthetic attraction to snow. Yeah. Huh. And you still have all your original fingers and toes too, I guess. So, I do. I yeah, do. So you, you did all right. Yeah. Yeah. My feet are, are pretty beat up, but yeah, I do have all my digits. <laughs> There's something to be said for that. Yeah. So the most recent major calving off of an ice shelf was the 2,200 square mile piece known as Larsen C, which broke off the ice cap over Antarctica back in July. And although it will not directly cause sea levels to rise because this particular piece was already floating on the water, it is expected that Larsen C will indirectly lead to some sea level rise because it will no longer be able to hold back glaciers on land as it has for millennia. And if those end up in the sea, they will add to the volume of water in it. I believe there's already evidence of that happening thanks to the earlier loss of another piece of the same ice shelf known as Larsen B, which broke off back in 2002. 
Now, another glacier in West Antarctica known as Thwaites may be in jeopardy as well. So in your estimation, how do these Antarctic ice shelf crack-ups rate in terms of their climate change significance compared to the glaciers that you've studied on the other end of the globe or on other melting phenomena elsewhere? Well, the first difference is that West Antarctica is a great deal bigger. It's got the potential to raise sea level by a much greater amount than, say, glaciers in Alaska. And the mechanism of this ice shelf breaking up, that's become a real focus of research. It's important to understand how it works. Glaciologists sometimes have described these ice shelves as functioning like a cork in a bottle, sort of holding back the contents of the ice sheet sitting up on land, which flows down to the ocean and into the water. And the presence of the ice shelf, which is thick ice, so thick meaning 1,500, 3,000 feet thick, but is captured, trapped on the sides by the embayment that it's in. That whole ice shelf, even though it's floating, can provide a resistance to ice flowing off of land. It's called a backstress. And when you take away that ice shelf, that takes this obstacle out of the way and allows the ice on land to move faster. The Larsen Ice Shelf is very well known for this. The first breakup of the Larsen B, that was a very dramatic event because it happened in just the space of a couple of days. And the Larsen ice shelves provide an example in advance of what might happen in other parts of West Antarctica, and particularly what's called the Amundsen Coast, which is where the Thwaites Glacier and its neighbor, the Pine Island Glacier, are. That is probably the part of the world that has the greatest potential now for extremely rapid sea level rise. We still don't understand the physics of how all of this works well enough to make any very confident prediction of how likely it is to happen, what its actual magnitude will be if it does happen. The Larsen ice shelf and the glaciers behind it don't have much capacity to raise sea level very much because that's out on the Palmer Peninsula. It's the long curved peninsula that comes off of Antarctica, points up towards South America. So that's another cork in a bottle, but it's a very small bottle. The Amundsen Coast, however, Pine Island and Thwaites are corks in a very big bottle. And that's where a lot of the research, which has gotten media attention recently, like this paper by DeCanto and Pollard that came out in 2016, where they, they're investigating a newer mechanism for the rapid disintegration of these outlet glaciers sitting in the ocean that suggest that it may be possible to pull ice out of the Amundsen coast and put it in the ocean even faster than was previously thought. So the Larsen ice shelf breakup is studied as an example of that. There are other parts of the world where you can see the same kind of thing. Where I worked in Alaska, Columbia Glacier, it has been going through a similar kind of transition since the early 1980s. Mm. And we were there primarily to understand the mechanism of how it works. If Pine Island Bay and Thwaites Glacier really do fall apart and accelerate in the fashion that this paper that DeCanto and Pollard published, it really could spell a very large sea level rise in excess of two meters 
in excess of six feet in the next hundred years. But again, we don't know if DeCanto and Pollard are right, both about how the mechanism works and whether or not, in fact, it'll happen. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to understand this point about Larson sort of being the cork in a smaller bottle than uh, Thwaites and Pine Island and Bay Glaciers. Is that just because of the depth of the ice behind? No, it's because the Larson ice shelf is on the side of this long, skinny peninsula. So the only glaciers that feed into the Larson ice shelves are the ones on this peninsula. Which oh, you, I see. They're disconnected from the main West Antarctic ice sheets. Right, right, right. So there's just not that much ice yeah. to come out through those embayments. Right, right. Okay. So when we talk about the potential sea level rise from melting glaciers, that implies that we actually have an idea of how much water is trapped in them. Yeah. How do we even estimate that? We do it by mapping the area of glacier ice. That's easy. And then measuring, calculating, estimating, and to a certain degree, guessing the thickness of the ice. You've got the area and the thickness together, then you know what the volume of ice is. Is there a density in there as well? Yeah, there's a density to convert the volume to a mass. One of the things that makes life a little bit simpler for glaciologists is that ice is really quite incompressible. So once frozen water becomes what we recognize as ice, its density, which is 917 kilograms per cubic meter, it really doesn't change. You can't squeeze ice and make it smaller, not with any kind of pressure that we you know, see on the, right. you know, on the surface of the earth. I guess I had assumed that there would be some ice that had maybe more air trapped in it, and so it wouldn't be as dense. Not really. No, the transition from fern, which is the term for multi-year snow, to ice is quite distinct. And there is a little bit of a transition. If you consolidate fern, again, that's this multi-year snow, to the point where all of the voids in the snow are cut off from one another. So they become isolated bubbles. That's at a density of about 836 kilograms per cubic meter. But then it's just a little bit more aging and compression of the ice to bring it to 917. So okay. when you look at the entire volume of a glacier or an right. ice sheet, you don't have to consider anything other than the single density. Gotcha. Yeah. Even there, I guess I'm just head math was about 10% variance, right, in the density. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the lowest to the highest kind of, yeah, okay. Yep. So starting in the late 1990s, you spent about a decade leading a team that was studying the Columbia Glacier on Alaska's south central coast. I'm kind of surprised actually that one could even spend that much time studying a single glacier and get enough information from it to be worth the effort. I mean, why, why spend so much time studying one glacier and what can that particular Columbia Glacier tell us? Well, that 10 years that I spent working on there was only a portion of the overall history of the project that was started really in the early 1970s by a team of researchers from the U.S. Geological Survey in Tacoma, Washington, led by two people, Mark Meyer and Austin Post, who were glaciologists with the USGS. And there are 53 Alaskan glaciers that end in the ocean or did end in the ocean at one time, calved icebergs. And between the 1880s about and today, 
they have all retreated, and I'll get to that idea in a moment, with the exception of Columbia, which was the last one to really start in the early 1980s, and the Hubbard Glacier, which is a little bit further south down the coast, which is partly retreated but could retreat further. So when the USGS scientists, Meyer and Post, were looking at these glaciers, they recognized that glaciers that had occupied some very long fjords, like Muir Inlet, it's a very famous tourist destination now. These are fjords that go back miles that were completely filled with ice up until, well, sometime in the 19th century, when the Vancouver expedition and the Cook expedition, for that matter, cruised up the Alaskan coast in the late 18th century. They described ice in these fjords extending all the way out to the essentially the submarine sill that marked the opening to the ocean. And those termini are they're way back up these fjords now. And the retreat of these Alaskan glaciers happened very fast. And it happened by rapid calving of icebergs. Um, icebergs calving off much faster than they could be replaced by flow from upstream on land. And so when you're breaking off ice in this sort of conveyor belt coming down to the ocean, faster than it can be replaced by flow, what marks the end of the glacier shrinks. It goes back upstream. Of course, the ice is always flowing down, but the process of iceberg calving is like it's chopping off that terminus faster than flow can replace it. So it retreats by rapid calving. And it's a process that is quite similar to processes that we see in Greenland and Antarctica. And so I was there for the 10 years that I spent on Columbia Glacier trying to understand how that whole business works. What really controls the calving of icebergs, the breaking off of discrete blocks of ice. While this retreat is happening, the ice is actually moving very fast. The retreat doesn't happen because the ice slows way down and calving takes over. It's actually both calving and flow speed up enormously. The Columbia Glacier in the early 2000s was moving at about 30 meters a day, about a little more than 100 feet a day. Oh, wow. So you really can see things happening over oh, yeah. a decade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, during the decade that I worked there, the glacier lost almost 10 miles. Wow. Of its length. Wow. And that was a fraction of the what's now altogether about 30 miles of retreat of the terminus since around 1983, 1984 is when this really first got started. So, yeah, these are very dramatic and very rapid changes. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. 
Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As we mentioned in the interview, an annual report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, showed mixed results for the Arctic. You wouldn't necessarily know it from most of the press coverage, which typically went for sensationalist clickbait highlights rather than really covering the report's findings. But what the report actually said is that spring and summer air temperatures in the Arctic were relatively cool in 2017, and more like what they used to be before the present warming trend began in the 1990s. Summer ice loss was slower, snow cover rebounded a bit in the Eurasian Arctic, and the melting of the Greenland ice sheet was below average. And the Arctic tundra is becoming greener, and the Arctic seas are seeing higher ocean productivity. On the other hand, the average air temperature in 2017 in the Arctic was the second warmest since the 19th century after 2016, as were the permafrost temperatures. And the winter maximum of sea ice extent in March was the lowest on record, while the sea ice that was there was younger and thinner than in the past. And sea surface temperatures were up to 4 degrees Celsius warmer than average. So, once again, this report clearly shows that we have a serious warming problem. But as with so much in the domain of climate science, it's a complex picture of positives and negatives, and it forces us to grapple with conflicting and complex realities, rather than simply seeing all of the results as being optimistic or pessimistic. Item 2. A new paper by Tom Wigley of the University of Adelaide, who is one of the most highly cited climate scientists, finds that long-run temperature rise could be limited to 2 degrees, even if CO2 emissions remain positive. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.